0: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and co parents of all ages, this podcast is for you. Introducing in the center ring the amicable divorce expert, Jeth Weigel.
1: Today we have author and certified public accountant, certified divorce divorce accountant, too. We have David Stolls. David wrote a phenomenal book, and that's going to be the topic of our discussion today. The title of his book is Women, Divorce, and Money. I read the book. I love the book. I think it's a great book, David. And I think it has very little to do with women and a whole lot to do with people and divorce. I would like you to respond to that because as a woman, I found very little that was specific to women. I found everything phenomenal for the divorce process. So could you just answer why you even put women in the title?
0: Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you for that. And thank you for the introduction. I appreciate that. So I um, I've wondered about that myself when I, I started Started working with divorce situations. I don't know, twenty years ago or something, probably. And and after I re- after it became something that I thought I would sort of focus on a little bit more, I did sort of wonder why am I always referred women? What what is it about that? I you know I can guarantee you I have no magic uh, you know ability to get along with one gender or the other. It's not that. Um, although I I do enjoy working with women, I will say that. So I, I I wondered about that for a long time, and then I realized that there was a study that was done. And it, it asked, um, going through divorce, how many people would actively seek out financial advice, not just be receptive to somebody saying, Hey, you should do this or do that, but they actively seek it out. 61% of women said they actively seek out financial help during divorce. So then they turned the question on the men. So, so, you know, there's all kinds of jokes about men not taking advice and, you know, and whether they're appropriate or not, I don't know. I guess I could speak to that, but um, 61% of women, 4% of men, four. And so if we're rounding to the nearest 10th, that's a zero. So for whatever reason, men just don't reach out during divorce. I, I, I mean, I, it's a little bit of a thing. I can count, uh, I think twice I've had men contact me for financial assistance in divorce. And one of those was even referred by his wife. Because she handled all the finances and knew he didn't have any kind of a basis to understand him, and so she referred him to us, which was fine. But I, so you, you wonder, you know, you write a book. It's I'm not an author. I wrote a book kind of on a, on a topic that I care about, and I you
1: wouldn't know I, that that this but, is a well written book, David. Keep, yeah, keep thank going. you. Yeah. So I'm.
0: So I, you know, is, you wonder, did I limit my market in half by by addressing the book to women, divorce, and money? But I don't think so. I, I think women naturally are more curious and more interested in kind of solving these problems and getting answers. So I, that's, that's the reason I got there is because that's the only people that reach out to me and, and want to meet.
1: Okay, now that makes perfect sense. That literally makes perfect sense. If 61% of women seek out financial help and only 4% of men why not put women in the title? Okay. So I get it. I get it. I get it. But if we have any men listening in touch with their feminine side, (laughs) this is a phenomenal book. Interesting to me, David, that the book isn't all about money. This book is woven between money and the divorce process. And I know you're not an attorney. I'm not an attorney. I'm a mediator and a paralegal, but we all run into the same stuff. Each one of us in our areas of expertise that we provide as a service for people going through divorce, we have to be very in tune to the emotional side of divorce, the legal side of divorce. Um, And then especially with you, the tax implications of the settlement, which is different than what most people think. So I'm going to focus on the financial parts as much as possible because that's what you are as a, as a financial expert. I'm going to start, though, with something that's come up twice in my office in the last week and a half. So you are the perfect person to come on and answer this. Here's what I've been asked. You have two ways of filing for not living with somebody anymore. You have divorce, and then you have legal separation. In both of these cases, there is there are tax returns that have to be filed once the divorce or the legal separation is finalized. So I'm going to ask you one question at a time. In divorce, depend, does it... Does it matter when the divorce is final and the last time you can file married jointly? What are the rules for getting a divorce finalized in 2022? Doesn't matter which date it's finalized uh, as a directive for how you can file for ta- your uh, taxes for the 2022 tax year.
0: Yeah, great question. So. The status on the last day of the tax year determines how you can file. So on December 31, are you married or are you not married? So if you are so if you're not married, then your choices are single or if you've got kids at home and you meet the rules, you can file as head of household. So you get divorced on February 1st. At the end of the year, you're not married. So you file for single or head of household for the entire year or the other way around. You get divorced on December 20th. You file or a 30, single. Or 30th, day. Yeah. yeah. You file for single for the whole year, which brings up on your financial question, which brings up, so you divide, you know, somebody has a rental property, let's say, you know, and you're making rent and doing all that stuff and you get married halfway through, excuse me, you get divorced halfway through the year. You get to the end of the year, one person was awarded the rental house. Well, who reports the income for the first six months when you were married, who reports the income for the second six months when you weren't married? And so that that those things get interesting. Uh and and there's state law has some impact because titling on the on assets like that it makes a difference. The, the the point on any kind of an asset like that is you want to talk it through before you get done, because nobody wants to get to next April 15th. And call your ex and say you're reporting half of that income, right? And they're like, "I'm not reporting that income. I didn't get that asset. You, that's your, you know." And, and so it starts this tug of war again. So the last day of the year determines how you file. And so I've also seen. Let me take it the other way. So you have a very complex situation. I mean, lots of assets, businesses, rental properties, all that stuff. So how you would divide that up gets. Can be you can decide how to divide it up, but the tax issues of who's going to report what income for what year. So they'll have it completely done, all settled, all done, and they won't record it until January. So they file a joint return for that whole year, even though they've agreed as to how they're going to split stuff up. January 2nd comes around, boom, we record it. Now you're now you can take the income from those assets separately and move forward. That's a good way to do it with complicated assets.
1: Okay, so hold on. Let me just see if I got this. Um they are still married on December 31st with the with the situation you just described. They have right. to be still married right. in order to do that. Um, now, do, <clears throat> I'm going to ask my other question in a second. I just want to follow with this because this is important. And I was going to get into this anyway at some point in my discussion with you. And that is... So everybody does their settlements with a mediator, without a mediator, and they look, it looks pretty even. They they both feel that it's their assets and their debts have been equally divided, but they have not gone to see their accountant who will then tell them what the tax implications are in what they walked away with, a business, a house, a rental property, all things that carry different tax uh, pensions,
0: right, right? All
1: things that carry different tax implications, right?
0: Uh, yeah, absolutely. And that's the that's the you know, you do so much of mediation work that you 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 have a good kind of a better grasp on this stuff than a lot of people are going to. So you know that one asset, that's valued at pick a number one asset that's valued at $300,000 is not worth the same as another asset that's valued at $300,000 because of the tax implications. So, I mean, the, to pick something's really simple, an IRA that's $300,000 versus, cat, you know, $300,000 in a savings account. Those are very different tax assets. When you take a dollar out of the IRA, you got to pay tax, you take a dollar out of savings, you pay no tax. So the, 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 I, the general idea is once you have your list of marital assets, you would wanna take a look at them from the tax perspective and how that impacts the value. So the, back to your thing about a pension. So the government owns part of your pension. You just haven't paid it yet. So when you get to collect it, they're gonna get their piece. Now you can plan a little bit so that their piece might be 15% instead of 22%, or you can do that. But one way or another, they own a piece of that asset. So whatever it adds up to, It's really less than that because you're going to have to pay the government some piece of that when you take it out.
1: So this is such valuable information. I really, and I've done this for 10 years, I mean mediated for 10 years in California. I didn't understand about the tax implications until a few years ago. Literally through this podcast, I started talking to more and more financial people and they opened my eyes. Now, I always said to my clients, talk to your accountants. I knew to at least say that Mm -hmm. before you sign off on this settlement agreement, at least talk to your accountants. But I didn't know or understand more than a few years ago, that in talking to their accountants, this issue of tax implication was going to come up. And I almost think that when people are amicable, they'll come to me. And and it doesn't mean they don't have any money. I mean, I've done $25 million settlements more than people know. It just means people are able to talk things out Mm -hmm. and they're willing to divide whatever they have to divide California law. Well that's all fine well and good but California law doesn't take into considerate into consideration the tax implications on any one asset it just it's a community property state and anything invested in or purchased with monies that we make on our jobs from date of marriage to date of separation creates community property you know mm-hmm. that's it it's pretty simple mm-hmm. But what isn't simple is what's the real value of what you're walking away with after you file your next tax return as an unmarried person? Mm
0: -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you, you know, you and I live in community property states. I'm in Washington. And so we think the world is we think all the world behaves like community property states, which they don't. So people listening that have that don't live in community property states have something different. But what this is you know, you're an advocate for you know, getting this stuff done out of court. I mean, you're a big advocate for that. And this is one more reason because if if you go to the, the court is generally not interested in hearing, well, that asset's only, you know, if I have get that asset and I sell it, I'm gonna have to pay 25% in tax, and I'm not gonna have that. But they they don't really, they're not interested in that. It it gets too weird for them. The, the only exception to that is if the court says, I can't just, you know, the the court rules and says what you have to sell the family home. Then you're going to divide the money. So if they dictate that something's going to has to be sold, then they will be open to talking about and understanding the tax implication of that, of that requirement. But if it's just like, I'm getting savings, you're getting the IRA that they don't, they're not interested in that conversation. So one more reason that settlement is huge because you can decide, especially on the amicable situation, you're, you're going to be empathetic to me saying, Hey, there's a big tax hit if I get that. Can we somehow even this out somehow so it's not quite so bad? So yeah, another reason to just stay away from the the people in the black robes because they they're they they're not interested in this topic.
1: Well, I don't know that they're even qualified to deal with it. To be honest with you, mm-hmm. so I, this is such a perfect point that you just brought up about keeping the settlement discussions and negotiations out of court. Now that we've introduced that there are tax implications that could result in a very uneven settlement. um, Ultimately, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. no judge can really do that. Now, I did, I was in a courtroom because I was interviewing a judge one day uh, during his lunch break in his chambers. Mm -hmm. And so I got there early and there was a case going on and you're allowed to sit in the courtrooms Mm -hmm. and listen to cases, which I really think everybody getting divorced should do. You need to see what a trial is like. You need to see what it's like for a judge to make decisions for you because um, it, it doesn't work the way you think it's going to work all the time. They have nope. a very narrow lane that mm-hmm. they can uh, create decisions in. And there's no empathy emotion, and emotion in that lane. It's It's just strictly laws. Yep. But there was a forensic accountant. Giving testimony that day in a trial. And that's possibly the only way that in court an appropriate decision could be made if both parties had forensics discussing the tax implications. These are very expensive people to have.
0: Exactly, very expensive. And depending upon, I, I don't, I'm not sure how California works. You know, sometimes uh, I was talking to somebody, I think, in Arizona and in Arizona, if you have two valuation people come in, the, the judge, the court is not allowed to split the difference. So the judge has to take one value or the other. You can't go down the middle, which is what a lot of a lot of times the court will do. They can't figure it out. So they just go, well, let's split it down the middle. So you get into those kind of things. And then it then it turns into who was the better presenter. Not necessarily who's technically better, but the answer who, who, who's, who told a better story? It's like you do not want your finances being handled and, and put into that situation. So you want to stay away from that if at all possible.
1: You know, you you said something else, by the way, that's not financial, but it's real. And this actually happens in court. Who tells the better story? Judges are human beings, Mm -hmm. just like us. And we can be swayed by a persuasive talker. Mm-hmm. And what they're saying could be so far from the truth. It doesn't even matter. But all of a sudden like they, we believe what they're saying. And there was an attorney in my office one day actually pitching himself. He wanted me to refer him as what we call a, um, a, a short-term hire. God, I can't even remember. The name is, um, you just go and represent that one day in court. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have to hire the attorney to do the whole case. Just, um, uh, representation for for a hearing, and he was telling me that what they learn in law school is how to act.
0: Mm, interesting.
1: Literally, how to act, how to behave, the, uh, the the body movements to use, how how you use your voice inflection, and um and and he said we're we're taught how to be arrogant, we're taught how to bully, we and I was just like. Oh my God, (laughs) I wish every human being wanting to get divorced was standing here with me. This is incredible. Okay, so now I want to go to my other question. Legal separation. Legal separation means the whole process is the same as divorce, the division of assets and debts, custody, child support, alimony. Everything is the same, except one thing. You cannot remarry. Right. You are actually still married. Uh, what are the options in filing taxes when you file for a legal separation?
0: Yeah, a great question. Another another great question. So see this all the time, not all the time, but see this frequently, sometimes for you know religious reasons or other reasons they want to do it. And I've had attorneys say, well. They, they keep filing joint, right? Because, I mean, they're still, you know, everything's still kind of whatever. And I said, you're not supposed to file a joint return if you are legally separated the way you describe it. Sometimes people get confused on what that term means. It's not just separation. It's like it's a legal process. Whatever. It's different been... than
1: naming the date of separation. So you still have to name on a petition
0: right.
1: the date of marriage, the date of separation, because at least in California, it bookends the community property relationship of the couple. Go ahead.
0: Yeah. Yes. But you would file separate. You are legally separated. You, you go down and you you can go to the IRS instructions and it'll tell you that. But I've had a number of attorneys say, well, I know couples that have filed jointly for years. I go, well, the IRS doesn't know you're legally separated. There's no, there's no court document that makes its way to the IRS. And, you know, is it a huge problem? Probably not, but it's not the right way to do it. And you don't, I don't, I think if you are legally separated, you don't want to be sharing information like that anyway. You know, it's like, we divided the assets i'm i'm taking care of my side of it you're taking care of your side of it let's just you know do your own returns and move on i think that's a better way to go
1: okay so i my accountant is on the uh, my floor in the office building extremely mm-hmm. convenient for both filing my business and personal taxes and asking him questions sometimes. So I did ask him this question about legal separation. And he said, well, technically you can file jointly um, if you file and, and conclude a legal separation. And I said, okay, but your point is interesting in that Well, why would you want to if you've just separated everything? What's the point? You don't want to share financial information.
0: Right.
1: Now, I just had a couple and then you can I'll I'll let you talk a lot. Um, I just had a couple who came in here a few days ago or last week and we initiated the filing for divorce. Husband, though, wanted to file legal separation. First of all, I don't think he was emotionally ready to get divorced. I mean, that was my read in the meeting. Mm. And I get that. I mean, I get that. Not everybody's emotionally ready to move forward, but the person who is does and, you know, that's the way it goes. And this is why this topic came up. He had said in our meeting last week, well, I know you want to get divorced and you know I'm not ready, but think about this financially. We can still... File jointly and enjoy um, a tax savings if we get legally separated. But you still say, no, you can't file jointly or you really shouldn't.
0: Well, you shouldn't. Um, But uh, it gets done a lot and it does go down. These are some very specific things. I know because we were going through it for Washington State. So we're trying to figure out, you know, kind of tracing Washington State, how they interpret legal separation and comparing that to what the IRS code section says. And there's some other subtleties in here too, not to drift too far, but there's, there's a married considered unmarried setting in the IRS. So, and there's a, there's a um disregarding community property laws section for filing married, a, a married tax return. So there's, there are some weird quirks. So I think you want to get somebody specific in your state and specific with your example and say, okay, where am I at? The, 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 um, Married but considered unmarried status is sort of the chance for somebody who's married, but they have no contact with their spouse. They, ha- they they don't know any information about what's going on. They don't, they're not like they're invisible, but they just don't share anything. And if you maintain your own home and you've got, you can meet the rules, it's like, then you can file as if you're unmarried, but you're still yeah. married. And then the community property stuff, The the challenge with community property rules is that Community property income is 50-50, right? Even though it's my wages, it's still 50-50 income. So to file a separate return in community property state, you have to know what the other person makes. Because my, my income goes to you, half your income goes to me. So there's a way that you can disregard community property rules if if you have no knowledge of what the other person has. You have no knowledge of what they're making. They're not talking to you. They're not telling you anything. So there there's some really subtle, odd ways you can file tax returns in marriage. So... Most of it's straightforward, right? You, you file joint return when you're married. Then you file if you got kids. You file head of household after. Pretty straightforward. But you get right. into some of these odd areas. You want to, you know, get somebody who's comfortable with with your state, comfortable with the rules, and kind of work it through.
1: Right, 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 and right. Um, now, reasons why people file for legal separation: religion.
0: Mm-hmm. Their religion
1: will not allow them to be divorced. So, legal separation is that neutral zone. Health insurance. Mm -hmm. People can still be covered with their other spouses under their other spouse's health insurance if you're legally separated. Can't when you're divorced. And emotionally, some people just can't deal with the idea of being divorced. And at least at the time of filing, have no interest in remarrying.
0: Yeah. And sometimes there's a thing about, um, I can't handle my spouse's spending problems anymore. I just can't deal with it. I we've we've fought about it for years. I don't want to be responsible for that. Or or take a take maybe they're, they're dealing with you know drug or alcohol challenges or whatever. And the thought of them crashing their car or hurting someone or something, and so you want to wall off that those assets and those liabilities. So there's yeah, you know we're all we're all full of interesting challenges.
1: Yeah, no, you God, that was another interesting point, David. Um, I I had a client who came to me last year, she's still dealing with his divorce, and she had inherited a house from her parents, fully paid for, except for property taxes that go on yearly. And she was married to somebody who was just fairly delinquent in all areas of responsibility. Her words, not mine. Mm -hmm. He crashed cars, took her car, took their adult son's car, crashed everything, giant alcoholic. And she literally had to pay for all of this stuff Mm -hmm. because it happened while they were still married. So any debtor, any collector of debts, any creditor, right? Um, if you have a debt incurred while you're married and you don't pay it, they will come after the other spouse. They couldn't care less how your settlement agreement is written. They didn't, they weren't asked, Mm -hmm. uh, how they would behave when you went to write your settlement agreement. Oh, no, no. So she literally, because he wasn't working, he was such, had, had such an addiction issue and obviously mental health issues. Obviously, yeah. when you're that addicted to stuff, uh, you're hurting. Mm-hmm. She had to assume the burden of those responsibilities um, as she was filing for divorce just just to get her life moving forward.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's and I would say, you know, we would you know, we're not advocates for pushing divorce. But if, if you're looking for a good reason, that's a good reason. Because uh, yeah. if somebody else kind of making your financial decisions for you by their behavior, by their reckless behavior, that's yeah. a that's a tough one to live with.
1: that is such a tough one to live with. I it, interesting. Okay, I want to ask you another question. Equalization payments. I think this is really important for people to know. So we talked about, in community property states, anything purchased or acquired or indebted with mm-hmm. monies that we make on our jobs from date of marriage to date of separation, we have just created community property or community debt. Okay. We have other states called um, equal distribution of asset states. Mm-hmm. This is worse than a community property state, don't you think? Because the rules are kind of gray and... Other people really do decide what an equal distribution is, don't they?
0: Yeah, Yeah, well, that whole topic, um, you know, equitable distribution, equal distribution, you know, how that all works out. And and you're talking about kind of equalizing payments. Those are all all those things to me feed back to the whole thing about stay away from court because we can we can sit down and talk stuff through to come up with something you know, I'm using air quotes, <laughs> fair, which I say never use that term in divorce. But I, I know, I know what you mean. <laughs> and so th- that's where you can work things out. You can do things uh, kind of through mediation and getting along that you can't do in court. So you know, you're going to let somebody interpret the rule. That you know, I don't know. It just doesn't. I, I realize some people, some you know, on on occasion, somebody just buries their head in the sand and say, "Make me. I'm not going to do a thing." But Most of the time, that's not the case because they get injured, too, if they go to court or they have the potential to get injured, too. So Mm -hmm. all these things are reason to just negotiate this thing out. That's the best thing to do by far. And I think people recognize that, not to mention the cost.
1: I think they do even after a certain point. So somebody came here one day recently. I didn't end up doing uh, filing for them. They, they actually did go to attorneys. It was his second divorce. They both had money. He had more than her because he was an attorney in a different area of law, but she had a very high powered job made well into six figures, well into it. He was telling me that his first divorce cost him 1.2 million and he blamed it on the attorneys. And I said, don't, the only reason you needed attorneys was because you two couldn't talk to one another. Mm -hmm. You need attorneys to teach you the law. You cannot take attorneys out of the equation. You should not take attorneys out of the equation. You need them for legal advice and legal counsel but if you are going to use them to communicate for you because you cannot communicate on your own that's where that that bill with no ceiling mm-hmm. is going to come into play and and so you know I support you you support me in saying if you can keep this out of court and if you two can talk to one another it is the best thing, but you brought something up that I want to explore with you, and then I'm going to get to the equalization. <laughs> thing. And I wrote it down and I, you know, <laughs> we'll get to it, but I want to capture this. Everybody's hurt. Everybody's hurt when they go to get divorced. Everybody's mm-hmm. hurt. The extent of your hurt, obviously, can be different, different intensity, but everybody's hurt. I talk a lot, and you kind of talk about this too in the book, David. I talk a lot about go through the emotional divorce first, Mm -hmm. which is the grieving process, ending up with some level of forgiveness and apology, wherever your your journey needs to take you, and then start the legal process. Because I don't think you can do both at the same time. You can't be emotional and make financial decisions. So don't you talk about that a little in the book? About the emotions and how they can mess you up when you're making financial decisions,
0: oh goodness. yeah, and that's the that's the internal and the external struggle, right? You've got this internal stuff you're dealing with in your head, and then you're trying to make these external financial decisions. And we know that there there are the there are common stressors that are that affect everybody men, women getting married, getting divorced all the time. if you have if you have a time constraint, if you have information overload. If you have complexity and you have uncertainty, those things are known to affect the quality of decisions. We can't, we can't process very well. And divorce has like all of those things. You know, you might have a, you know, retirement might have one or two of those stressors in there, but, or or something else might, and and there's things that would be more intense than divorce to loss of a child or loss of a spouse or something. I can't imagine, but you get into those things. So, so you, I agree with you. If you could say if you could get the time to kind of work your way through those things and and kind of all the way through those things and then sit down and deal with it, that would be by far the best thing to do. Unfortunately, we don't see a lot of that. We see that somebody's mad or somebody did this or that or they think they did there or I've had enough or whatever it is. It's like, boom, we're going. And the other person, whether it was whether they're the driver or they're the person being driven in this process it's like you, you don't get that opportunity. And so our, in our meetings, we're we're conscious of, you know, okay, information overload. Well, we can deal with that a little bit by explaining things, you know, and just like, okay, well, information overload in divorce, a lot of it is just terminology. It's like, well, I don't know what a financial declaration is. Well, I don't know what a quadro is. I don't know, you know, no. And why would you know what that is? You know, you never, you don't need it. But so, you can like information overload is just something that's like, okay, let's just talk about it again. And we expect that we're going to have the same questions in the second meeting as the first meeting. And then the third meeting is the second meeting because it takes time to go through this stuff. And so, you know, you can't do, you can't eliminate all the uncertainty, but you can eliminate some of it by having a financial model. It's like, okay, here's a hypothetical asset division. Here's what kind of cash flow that generates for you. Here's what your new retirement would look like, your new world would look like. So, Yeah, you do have to and to your point, if you could, if you could start by saying, let's just take a breath. I need to process all this stuff and understand, and then let's, you know, kind of work our way through. That's that's a great way to do it. I unfortunately we don't see a lot of people that are given that chance. Somebody's just driving it and and whatever, whatever the reason is, they don't want to stop driving. They're just gonna keep going.
1: So I'm going to add to that, David, that if both people are in the luxurious position of saying, okay, we know we're going to transition out of the marriage, but let's just pause before we file. And you have children and you're setting up a second household because you you know you're going to have to do it anyway. So you're going to start living in the future now without wow. filing. People do the best they can with child support and or spousal support. Mm -hmm. And I say, do the best you can. You may want to seek legal advice in terms of how child support, alimony, if there Mm -hmm. is going to be alimony slash spousal support, there isn't always, but, you know, if there is going to be, yes, you can go ahead and get legal counsel and kind of have a legal professional step in and explain how this works once there's two households. But just do the best you can at getting bills paid and making sure everybody's okay financially. And then when you bring in the legal professionals, when you're starting the filing, they will clarify how to do it going forward. So I just kind of wanted to neutralize that for people. Yeah. uh, If they do, if they are able to wait before they file.
0: Yeah. Wonderful. A wonderful way to go, and and to the extent we have two adults, you know, using the air quotes around that, to yeah. two adults going through the process, you can make that work. I mean, it, it's going to be bumpy and all the things that come up, but yeah, so much so much better than somebody just you know, you know, we've seen it all. Somebody just refusing to talk, refusing to do all the stuff. It's like right, it's, it's not going to go anywhere.
1: No, totally. it really, really isn't. Equalization payment. So now I want to come back to that. So. Oh, do you have these in, in, in Washington? We have in California, but it's an IRS code. It's actually a national thing, isn't it? An equalization payment. First of all, would, do you know what I mean? And would you like to define it?
0: Yeah. Well, give me, give me an example of it. Okay,
1: okay. This is what we look at in California as an equalization payment. Maybe you don't want to divide anything. Maybe the deal was, um, we each have our own stuff. And we don't really want to divide anything. We do, we realize we're not good at being married, so we're not going to be. But you have more money than I do. So what are we going to do if we don't want to technically divide things? Well, we can look on paper what it would be like if I got a portion of your stuff that's uh, more valuable than mine. And so a check is just written as a one-time equalization payment to equalize the standard of living or equalize the... um the asset values. And there's an IRS code that I can't remember right now that um, when I do have to put this in settlement agreements, I do have my cheat sheet and I look uh-huh. it up because I don't do it with every settlement agreement. Yeah. So it's not top of mind. But there is an IRS code that we name. This is a one-time equalization payment that carries with it no tax consequence. Is that familiar?
0: Yeah, so I don't see it with that term, but we see the same thing. So you've got, so you, you you're saying you have a disproportionate asset division, and you're going to equalize it with a with a payment with of some, one
1: payment only. We're not chopping yeah. anything in half.
0: Yeah, yeah, and so it's a way. Uh, there again, you know, when when we're at the table together and having a civil conversation, we can work all these things through. But sure, there might be some reason where something can't be, you know, a, a business where that has a value to it. We can't split that in half. You know, so there might be some, no way to equalize with the assets that are in the marital community themselves. And so, yeah, if there's re, if there are available resources to do that, you would you would do it with a one time payment to get to your whatever the asset division that was that was sort of the target, whether it was half or whether it was yes. some other amount.
1: Yes, yes, yes. But yes.
0: yeah, that would be, you know, I mean, most transfers in marriage in, in well, most transfers in marriage is a code section that says, hey, we're married. I can transfer the cabin to you. You can transfer the car. There's no tax on that. And then that's the same code section that extends into divorce where it's like, okay, also incident to divorce transfers are non-taxable. And that incident to divorce, if you have a document, that incident to divorce goes six years after the divorce. So three years later, I can transfer the house to you and you can transfer something to me. It's still non-taxable under that incident to divorce.
1: I did not know that.
0: I actually here's a riveting article that you can read. So <laughs> I have an article coming out in a couple of months in the Tax Advisor magazine. Isn't doesn't that sound riveting? It so, does.
1: So, it really does. I can't so, wait.
0: Anyway, yeah, yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of people who can't wait. But it's on that topic exactly. I'll send it to you when it comes out.
1: Okay, thank you. I'd really appreciate it. See, I learned something. I love when I learn something new in these interviews and discussions. Excellent pensions. This is a real issue with people. So the pension, either the pension is going to be divided or it is not going to be divided. But when it's time to take the pension, the pension department at the company wants to see the settlement agreement and the divorce decree. Right. And so many, so many years go by because the person holding the pension never brought the settlement agreement into the pension department as soon as the divorce was finalized. And I don't know one person who's uh, kept hold of their settlement agreement. One of the most important documents you're going to have. Right. Along with the title to your house. People lose these things. Yeah. So is you, can you give our audience some advice on regardless of whether you're going to divide it or not should you go into the pension department immediately and register that a divorce has been finalized
0: well the short answer is absolutely yes so here's here's part of the reason why so we use this term quadro uh qualified domestic relations order right and and the term looking at it from a tax person the term is slightly misused the term generally you would say the court is going to produce a quadro well technically that's not correct so the court produces the domestic relations order which is nothing but a, except a paragraph that says here's how we're going to divide this that goes to the plan administrator for that qualified plan in this case the pension that person makes sure that it meets i think it's code section 414 or something that person says okay, it meets all of the rules. So I'm going to sign it. That makes it qualified when that qualified plan administrator signs it. So two reasons you want to do this right away. One is they might say, nope, this doesn't meet the rules. So you have to go back to the court and have them fix this sentence or change this little thing or do this thing. You're you're going to do that years later? No, you don't want to do that. So so one, you want it done so you don't lose it and forget about it. But secondly, you want it done to know that it's finished. It's the, that plan administrator says, okay, when that pension starts, we're splitting it 60, 40, or whatever we agreed to.
1: Or we'll at least release it to you.
0: Yeah. Yes. And so then you've got that done. Okay. So, yeah, absolutely. You don't, you know, pensions are less popular, unfortunately. And, and I would say, just anecdotally, if someone has a chance to take a pension payout versus a dollar amount, when you generally run those models, the pension payout is better. So I'm not, that's not a universal answer. I'm not universally telling somebody to take the payments instead of the of the dollars. But the the ability to have a payment come in guaranteed over a lifetime, that's worth a lot. As opposed to getting, I don't know what numbers it takes to make. You, you can get $2,500 a month or you can get, you know, $450,000. I don't know what those two match up, but you would rather, generally you'd rather have the payment.
1: The monthly payment.
0: The monthly payment.
1: As opposed to the lump sum immediately,
0: right, even is though there a
1: tax implication that's better or worse,
0: well, or why? no, well, assuming you're dealing with retirement assets, the tax implication is going to be the same mm-hmm. so what, what the difference so the pension is going to be valued, and there's somebody's going to say it's worth four hundred and fifty thousand dollars or whatever the number is, so in theory, those amounts are equal. But the difference comes in that if I take the cash, I have to worry that I'm going to live to 108. So I have to invest it differently. I can't invest it to living to 82. I might live to 89. So the a pension is almost always a lifetime payment. So it it removes that longevity risk of me outliving that payment because that payment's going to keep coming in. I'm just saying have somebody run those numbers. And generally speaking, you would prefer to take the payment than the lump sum. Now, the investment people, which I'm one of those, the investment people like, no, take the lump sum because then I can manage it and, you know, make money off of it. But that's not generally what you'd want to do.
1: Advantageous to the recipient. Yeah, right. If you took a lump sum, though, would you still have to wait to the uh, to the person who, who owns the pension uh, is now drawing from it, or can you take the lump sum now? Or does this have to do with deferred comp versus defined?
0: Yeah. If you took a lump sum like a 401k distribution, you you sp- you split, you took money from their 401k account or you took an IRA account or something. If you took that, you just, anytime after age 59 and a half, you start taking it, it doesn't matter what the other person does. Whereas the pension, a lot of those pensions are still tied to that employee and when they turn age 65 or whatever the pension rules say, they start to get this payout. So you you just want to look and see what, what that particular pension said the rules were.
1: Okay, so so you just said a good thing. You really do have to read about the pension. And that's what I say to people when they come in and we start mediating. It's everybody's different. Every mm-hmm. pension is different. And so this is an excellent time to learn about yours. Don't make assumptions. And I can't answer that question. I, only your pension administrator yeah. can have these discussions with you. And then maybe you want to take it to your accountant and you know have a, a, a larger discussion. Discussion then about uh, taxes um, yeah. associated to that, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, and you're, you're building a new a new jigsaw puzzle, like I talk about in the book. So that involves different spending, different income, and different retirement. So you want to kind of take a fresh look at all those things with with whatever you're going to have at the end of the divorce.
1: Okay. Because the book does have the word women in the title, and we Uh-oh. didn't clarify. Oh no, no, it's gonna be a good <laughs> question, David. Okay, <laughs> no, I'm not challenging you on this, but you gave a great answer. See, I didn't know that either. Um, although again, this book is fabulous for men. It you you both will learn, men and women. Um, for women, though, since it is directed to this niche, anything. That women should look at specifically when they're dealing with their settlement that may be unique to women or specific to women.
0: Um, I I don't think about it that way. I think it's going to be unique to the situation. Mm. I you know if there's some patterns that I hear uh, and and you probably hear them too. I, so it, in a marriage, I think sometimes the, del- the, the duties sort of get delegated without really talking about them. I'm going to pay the bills and you're going to, you know, whatever, shop for groceries or I, how are those things? It sort of, it sort of just evolves. And it seems like a lot of times women feel like they weren't engaged in the financial part of it. Or I hear that a lot. I should have paid more attention to the finances. I was stupid. I should have been more involved, or whatever. And I don't really think that's true, anyway. I think it's just a division of who was doing what. So, so if there is one thing, I'd say, if if a woman feels like they're sort of behind the curve on understanding that stuff, just take a just dive in and figure it out. It's not complicated. it It's not going to be that difficult. It's just something new. So, terminology, you know, and maybe investment terminology, or maybe just basic paying the bills, or and you can do it any way you want. You know, you do it on software or do it online. Write checks, you know, whatever you want to do. Right. But I think I think if you haven't been as involved in the financial part of things, now it's now's your chance to step up and it won't be a problem. It won't be difficult, but it's just something new to to kind of work through.
1: Okay, so for a woman to educate herself, let's just say it's the traditional, honey, I just got our taxes done here, sign right there, man saying to woman, because that is very standard. Mm -hmm. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. That's the division of duties. I agree with you. So now that there is a divorce, for a woman to catch up to what's going on financially, because they become very worried. I don't really know. For, for And I hear this as well, for me to even fill out a financial statement or an asset and debt statement, mm-hmm. I have to ask him what we have. Maybe not. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't the the reality of your financial life be found in your joint tax returns previously filed?
0: Yes. Yeah. A couple places. So uh, yes, joint tax return. I have a meeting this week where we're gonna go online with the IRS and download tax returns for somebody who says they've never seen them. So we'll learn a lot. But tax returns generally report income. They don't report all the income. They report taxable income. So the tax return is going to show you the flows. You know, is there a you, you, you get paid as a W two like a payroll? Do you get interest and dividends or their investment incomes? All those kind of things are going to show on a tax return. Tax returns won't really show you a balance sheet. You can you can sort of use the tax return to build one. So if you have dividends coming from some account, well, go find the account. If you have rental income coming from some property, go find the property. So, the the tax return we we consider the tax return the right place to start. If you have access to other things, if you've done a refi- uh, refinance on your home or something and you did a a financial statement, perfect, get that. If you've you know, done a financial statement for the bank, if you have a line of credit and you have to do stuff every year, you bought a car loan or sometimes they don't have you fill out a whole financial statement. But you can also go uh, pull a credit report and it will at least show you, it's not going to show you a full balance sheet, but it's going to show you, hey, this much on a credit card, this much here, this much there. And so you'll see some of those things, not necessarily the assets, but you'll see the the liability stuff. So there's a couple of places you can go to kind of start building that if you don't know much about it.
1: So then, David, on a tax return, if one of the spouses um, has money taken out of their paycheck for a 401k, it's a matching investment, that would not be on the tax return?
0: Probably not. Mm. Uh, it would be, sometimes the tax returns have worksheets with them. You know, if you use TurboTax or you do it online or, or you know, have a tax preparer or something, there'll right. be these worksheets. So if you can get the full copy of the return with all those worksheets, the worksheets probably say W-2, you know, less all the things that were not all uh, the things, but less the, the number of the things were out of it. But
1: yeah. And then on the W-2 of all those little blocks, what was taken out from Medicare, yeah. Social Security, et cetera. Social Security. I didn't even think about this. Could you please explain the law around Social Security? Married 10 years, claiming your spouse's. Would you talk about that a minute, please?
0: Yeah. So just like you said, if you've been married 10 years, then uh, you have a vested interest in your spouse's Social Security benefit. So when when you get to where you're claiming Social Security, you can claim on your own account or a spousal benefit on your ex's account, which is half of their value, whichever is higher. So if I've been working hard and I've got a you know, I've had a good income or whatever, my, probably my benefits larger. If I deferred my career because I took care of the household and did all that, then half of theirs might be more interested. But th- they don't know you're drawing it. It doesn't impact what they get. It's invisible to the other party.
1: Ergo, so- why Social Security is supposedly a mess, because it doesn't it doesn't f- factor out logically, mathematically, that I could take half of my husband's social monthly social security payment, because it is larger than mine, and it won't affect him. What sense does that make financially?
0: (laughs) Yeah, that one, I don't know. I have a friend who's kind of a social security expert. uh, So I ask him these questions once in a while. But it's, you know, it's an old rule where you did have a very stereotypical arrangement where one party worked, one party didn't. And they just thought it isn't really fair that somebody using the fair term, I shouldn't use mm. that somebody might get sort of left out of that. And so they, they built that in there's a widow uh, arrangement too, either for, that goes either way, of course. And you can, there's some funny things where you can remarry. So if you, if you do remarry, you kind of blow through that idea. So if it's before age 60, but you can, You could be married to two people for 10 years and divorce them both. And then you can pick and choose which one you get to to draw on. So you'd want to pick the one who made more money.
1: Okay. So hang in there. Um, You're married for 12 years, you get divorced. Your spouse makes a lot more than you. So their social and, and social security was taken out. So they're going to have a higher social security benefit than you are. But you each remarry. Your The spouse you formerly were married to now has another spouse who's older than you and will get to their social security age first. They will ask to have half of your ex-husband's social security before you're able to. Does that eliminate your ability to take half of his?
0: It won't impact you at all. You still have the same wow. benefits you had before. So you could, you know, depending upon how old somebody was when they got married and divorced, you could have somebody who had two or three spouses that were uh, eligible to claim on their. Interesting.
1: Oh, God. That, see, and, this is so interesting. Hence the
0: social security rules being weird, right?
1: So uh, weird. I can't even tell you. Yeah. I, that blew me away. When I got into this business and I learned about that, I said, who made that rule? I mean, how... How is it possible for Social Security to function like that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, you know what? We have a lot of weird things that we do in this country. That's okay. True. Um, In the few minutes that we have left, I want to ask you about looking at divorce as an opportunity. And I'm looking at it financially and maybe professionally. But when, when you... When you talk about this, because it's it's something that's listed as you know one of the priority topics you like to discuss, what do you mean by that?
0: Well, kind of getting back to addressing the book uh, aiming the book toward women, I, I was concerned that what what credibility would I have? what Why would you buy a why would a woman buy a book from a guy telling them about you know, so one of the things I did was i I ran a survey, and I used a. A family friend who's an expert. My little sister's a PhD. Anyway, so she, we designed a survey together. And so in this survey, I asked all kinds of questions like, you know, what were your fears going in? What did, you know, did your friends give you advice you didn't want? What, you know, what did you learn about yourself and all these kinds of things? Well, I, I do ask the question about now that you're out of, you're done with your divorce, you know, what did you learn about yourself? And overwhelmingly it is positive. I mean, over and over and over these answers are, I learned I could do things I never thought I could do. I learned I was more capable than I thought. I learned I was stronger than I thought. I mean, it just goes over and over and over. And you just feel, you can just hear this sort of this, um, I mean, reemergence isn't the right word, but just this um, opportunity that people are seeing. Now they have less money. I'm sure almost every one of those cases, there's less money, but that's not the point. The point is they're in they're in charge of it and they're in control of it. And it so I just at the beginning of the book, I'm trying to just convey that here's what people tell me at the end of this process, despite how bad it might feel and look where you are at the beginning, here's what women tell me at the end. So I I don't know how to talk about that other than say, here's here's what women have told me. And so just keep one eye on this as an opportunity when you're kind of just stuck in the mud and feel like it's never going to get through this thing and and it's not going to work out and, you know, you're going to have bigger challenges than you want. That's not what I hear people say at the end.
1: You know, that that's interesting because, yes, everything is about fear at the very beginning mm-hmm. of the divorce process. And then at the end of it, it, you do emerge. You emerge as a different emotional person. Uh, you, you emerge as a slightly different financial person. But I do think if we don't play the victim, we emerge in a very positive way. I, mm-hmm. I do. And as you're talking, and I was thinking of this one woman that I met uh, in, in doing these podcast interviews. She. Uh, Very. she was a very high net, it was a high net worth family. They both made a lot of money. He made Buku money, but they owned two fabulous homes, you know, Mm -hmm. one on the water, one, you know, uh, as the daily family residence. And uh, she didn't think there was anything wrong in the marriage until one day she opened the door and the feds were there taking everything back. Uh, there was some gross financial negligence, we shall wow. say, on the part of the one spouse who made Buku Bucks. And her life changed in that instance. She had no idea what was going wow. on and how he was handling his business and all the laws around the business. What a positive person she was and emerged as. Uh, There were children involved, and so they had to sell their homes because Mm -hmm. they had money to pay back to the government. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she had to comply. She had no choice. And she just put pedal to the metal and said, time to rebuild. Didn't know it. I'll figure it out. Let's move forward. And just didn't seem to spend a lot of time Obviously, sometime you need to deal with the shock of what this is that's now changing your life overnight. Right. But even in a situation like that, where your life can financially be changed over overnight, you can still make more money. It's not the end of you, and you learn so much when when something is taken away that you're you're just in the middle of and you've accepted it and you don't think about it and you live your life, then all of a sudden that changes. So yeah, you are shocked, but it, it can be the best thing that's ever happened for you too. And, and right. you won't know that until time goes right. by and, and you have to work with your situation.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I think but I don't, it's hard. Sometimes I feel like it's hard to say that at the beginning, because you're, you're, you're sort of trivial, trivializing what they're going through at the moment. It's like, I'm not trying to do that. I'm just trying to say, but your victim thing is perfect because probably everybody going through divorce could, could, would be a victim of some, you know, maybe just a victim of apathy, maybe a victim of, you know, and so you, we have that, um, right. If we wanted to look at it that way, but the The idea of just keeping an eye that this might be an opportunity, this might be different than I think. And it kind of turns away from that victim thought, just like you said. I, 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 I agree completely.
1: And lastly, um, I'd like to finish with this. So you have the traditional marriage. And I, and I want to end philosophically like this. You have the traditional marriage. Husband works, makes quite enough money to support the family so mom can be at home for the most part and raise the kids. Do you feel that there should be maybe a hybrid to this? Because mom is giving away everything now. I mean, it's great to be home for the kids. I love Mm -hmm. that my mother was home for the Mm kids. There was no divorce in my family. But when you do that, you are literally giving up financial independence. And at the end of the day, there's so much to be said for financial independence. Do you have any thoughts on that?
0: Well, well, I'm trying to figure out how to.
1: Well, it's a loaded question.
0: yeah, yeah, Yeah,
1: it's an important one going forward.
0: Yeah. And so I would say, so let me, let me back up a step. I I do think we should all sort of be investing in ourselves. And so a, a person who does stay at home, if you can look at it that way, at some point there's a, there's kids get older, there's a little bit of a different need and to some extent, maybe a lesser need. And those are the times I think you would want to try to invest in yourself. I don't mean get a, I mean, maybe get a job, but I mean, just education-wise or whatever. So the the one that you feel, the one that's the most difficult there is the one who deferred everything. They deferred education, they deferred career, they deferred everything. And, and depending upon the age, it's like, is there enough time to restart that? Because all those things are good things. Education makes me feel like I know something and a, and a job makes me feel valuable. And th- those are all good things too. So I, I don't know how to even that out. But the, the the very traditional thing where, you know, one one party is certainly under has a lesser ability to catch up, a lesser ability to earn. I don't I don't know the answer there, but those are not those are not you just feel for the person in that situation.
1: The reason why I brought it up is because we still have a lot of the traditional marriages, Mm -hmm. especially in this town in Los Angeles, where there's a lot of money to be made in certain industries. And so the opportunity to have mom at home with the kids is greater than maybe some other uh, cities and states. I don't, I, I think so. But when there's a divorce, I've not in 10 years, heard one man say, I realize you gave up your job for me. I realize you gave up your career and I don't want you to worry. I will always pay spousal support. That simply doesn't happen. Here's what happens. Why do I have to pay you spousal support? Why can't you just get a job? Even though you haven't been in the job market for Uh 15 years. And in this day and age, the job market changes every year or two. I mean, who knows what kind of education you need next year or two years from now, you know, to get a decent job. It's just not the way the higher wage earner or the only wage earner thinks. And so as I do this, I, I think there's got to be a, a hybrid to this where if you can't afford Your children, the luxury of having mom at home Mm. or dad at home if mom Mm. makes more money. Mm. Um, I know you can't plan to be divorced, but you never know if your spouse is going to die. Right. There's that too. So then you're on your own anyway. It's a very tough situation. I just want women, since we're talking about women today, I just want women to be mindful when they make that choice of giving up their career that they could really be potentially harming themselves uh, in the future if something changes in the marital status. And don't think that your spouse is going to graciously hand over checks each month. That's like pulling teeth. Even if they're the nicest person, it's like pulling teeth. Anyway, David. It was such a great book. I really mean that. The title of the book, once again, is Women, Divorce, and Money. And again, men, you will love reading this book. Women, you will absolutely uh, learn from this book. It's so well-balanced. And even though I've been doing this for 10 years, it was a book that I enjoyed reading every night when I came home from work. Thank I you. mean that, David.
0: So. Thank you. Thank you so much. That means a lot. Thank you. Appreciate that.
1: Thank you for being here. Uh, How can people, it'll be, sorry, it'll be in the show notes, but how can people get in touch with you?
0: Um, There's a, I have an author website. That's just my name, David hyphen Stoltz, which is S T O L Z. And you can just go there. Um, There's some information there.
1: Okay.
0: Lately I've had a couple of people email me and say, you know, can you send me a couple chapters of the book so I can see, you know, see what I think? I'm happy to do that. If somebody wants to go to that website, just say, hey, send me a couple chapters.
1: Well, can't it. you go on Amazon and you can read little bits, right? Too.
0: Yeah. I don't know how much you can read. Yeah, you can. A little bit. And that's, yeah. I, yeah. And I do yeah. that all the time. Download and see if I like it. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Very good. David, thank you so much. It really was a pleasure. The time went quite quickly.
0: <laughs> it's good to be here. Thanks, Judith.
1: You're welcome. And thank all of you for listening. If you have topic ideas you would like for me to cover, you can reach me through the website for this podcast, theamicabledivorceexpert.com. Love all of your comments. And as always, have an amicable day.
0: That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. Be good to yourselves, be kind to your spouse, and cherish your children above all else.